Dropout Podcasts. Hello and welcome back to Adventuring Academy. My name is Brennan Lee Mulligan. It is my honor and joy to bring our special guest today. Uh, please give a warm welcome to our incredible friend, my old childhood friend, and the character artist at Heart Machine, uh, set to release Solar Ash Kingdom very soon in the same company that brought you Hyperlight Drifter. My friend and yours, Mr. Jack Hovell. Hello. Hello. Which camera am I looking at? <laughs> uh, you can look at this one for you okay. in a close-up, and this is both of us, and that one's Ooh. just me. So you can look at that one so if you want. Don't look at that one. Don't just, look just at that one. Just if I'm curious, one. I'll look at that one. Uh, exactly. Uh, uh, Jack, uh, you and I have been playing Dungeons & Dragons since we were, I want to say, like 15 years old. We were we were quite small when we started. Quite That's small. We have, a, we have a great and storied history of... Of the game. Of the game. The great game. The great Dungeons game. and Dragons. <laughs> uh, uh, in addition, uh, Jack has been in like almost every major campaign I've ever run. Jack not only is one of the six PCs in my fabled 10-year-long uh, uh, home game, Aridane, that we've been running for so long. Mm. We just played again back at my folks' place upstate. Uh, 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 for the first time, we play like a couple, a couple every couple months. We play again. We fly across the country to play together. Uh, uh, you so, also sort of make like a little retreat weekend out of it. Like little it's, it's, groovy full D and D weekend. It's infrequent, but but a very potent beautiful. session. Mm -hmm. uh, you also played in Storm City, which was the other many years long campaign. So True. I'm playing a lot of D and D. Um, so I'll start by uh, uh, saying. Um, as someone who's been playing D and D hardcore for so many years, you have a character who is now seventeenth level, a deity, a demigod. Uh, you're having like the fullest D and D PC experience, hit ticking all the boxes down the line. Yeah, it's been a uh, it's been a crazy ride. <laughs> <laughs> um, uh, you also uh, have run a bunch of D and D campaigns as well, and I think that was something that I wanted to kick off uh, uh, the most right away because you ran one of my favorite campaigns I've ever played in, which was Goblin Trouble, uh, a short for that's, Goblin. That's really nice to hear. Thank you. <laughs> it's true. Uh, it's just Goblin Trouble in Tenborough Country, um, and I think uh, uh, I would like you to talk a little bit about. Uh, that campaign, what prompted you to run that, like what your goals were in starting that, because I think that it addresses a point we get a lot on the show, and we get a lot in terms of our questions from the audience, which is um, the there's a sort of an attitude of like, oh, I want to have a game as big and epic as mm. like our home game that we run. Or, yeah. or you, you even think about like the big streams that are at like, like Critical Role where like they went to 20th level and defeated Vecna. Yeah. And uh, Goblin Trouble was specifically and intentionally not that. Yeah, it was, well like there's there was a lot of sort of contributing things to me starting that, that little game. Um, uh, like, I guess thematically, I've always really liked low stakes fantasy. Like, I always find that, like, when the stakes are, like, the fate of the world or whatever, you miss out on a lot of, like, honestly really fun character stuff to play. Like, you're just a person defending your family. You know, like, there's lots of low stakes, um, like, not world shaking, but, like, very, very personal uh, um, adventures that people can go on. Um, without like this huge grand uh, uh, thing, so I liked that about it. And then, um, uh, specifically that game, it was like um, it was at a time we were both living in New York. Um, I think we had, we were playing Aridane at that time, but it was like uh, you know we played it pretty infrequently, and it was a like a big 
um, grandiose, intense game. Um, I had run a couple games in the past, and uh, one of the sort of the observations that I had was like um, they were a little railroady. So mm-hmm. it was sort of very intentionally like, okay, we all are busy. Um, it's I think a, a really relatable situation where like everybody was working a lot. Um, Everybody was like, uh, didn't have a lot of time to to plan. We like, uh, uh, Griff had a game that had sort of like um, sputtered out, and like, uh, and I think you specifically had clocked something, which was like I was doing Aridane, and that was all I had bandwidth for. But I was also bartending at the time, yeah. so I like. I was working, but I did have like, I would have a crazy shift and then a day free where I could do right. stuff for Aridane. Griffin and Connor, who were our roommates at the time, we were living uh, uh, on Gold Street in New York. Uh-huh. Gold Street. Um, uh, what the, they were working more full time and I think had these huge campaign settings. Griff was trying to do this thing called Miracanth for a little while, and Connor was doing Terra. And the lore of these worlds were massive. They were big, epic worlds. And I think you and I were both watching Griffin and Connor like bite, take this tremendous load on themselves. Yeah. And I think you specifically clocked it and were like, no, 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 no. I am not. <laughs> I'm going to bite a really small. <laughs> So it was like, I think, uh, uh, yeah, like a direct reaction to that was like, okay, we're all, we all want to play. Um, uh, I didn't have a lot of like time and energy to like build a big complicated um, campaign setting like that. So like sort of a founding thing, I think I said uh, like leading this game was like, hey, I'm not going to put a huge amount of work into this. This is like, this is going to be our casual game and like... I sort of asked of the players, like, um, I'm not always going to give you, like, an adventure hook or, like, a um, yeah. whatever. And so the the game ended up being, like, um, at least the way I conceived it was uh, sort of like a dark fantasy survival, uh, like, wilderness survival element yeah. to it. Um, where, like, there wasn't a lot of education and there was this big empire that had recently fallen. Um and uh, basically, it was like the world was these settlements that were sort of scattered and isolated. Um, and uh, I basically I leaned into doing something that, like, I think in the past neither you and I had really like done a lot of, which is like I had a bunch of random encounter tables and like a bunch of random stuff in the woods, and like I had a map um, that sort of like whenever I was out and doing something, and I would have an idea. I would write down like, okay, here's an idea for something people could run into on this map. Um, uh, and then also I just went online and I uh, I borrowed a bunch of like towns and dungeons and like anything, there's, there's all kinds of like published adventures, which I always found more work to run than just making up our own stuff. Mm-hmm. Um, and just grabbed sort of the map from here and like some creatures from over here and said like, okay, they're like, that's here in the world and that's over there in the world. And um, uh, it sort of led to like, I think what was kind of cool about that game is um, again, sort of a reaction to like, I didn't want to run a game that was, uh, I wanted to fight sort of my own urge that I had noticed of like being railroady in my in my games. Mm-hmm. So I just had a bunch of tables and they were what they were. And it was, I led also with like, hey, I'm not gonna change these encounters to be good encounters for everybody like it's a dangerous woods i know what's in the woods and i'm gonna roll to see what you run into 
and that's it. Like <laughs> it was so freeing when you introduced that campaign. And I remember the attitude that you took with it. And it's I want to say something here, which is very funny at the time. Um, our some of our friends had bigger, more ambitious campaigns that they wanted to run more frequently. Because I was running a big, ambitious, epic, yeah. deeply world-designed campaign, but that's easy to do when you're only playing once every two months. Uh -huh. Like I would have two months to squeeze downtime in to prep the next session. Uh -huh. For everyone else, like like you know, our friends who were trying to run like weekly games or bi-weekly games that that's wanted tough. that depth <laughs> of lore building and deep campaign hooks, you, we sort of watched them, we'd get like a couple sessions in and it would be like, guys, I need more time to prep the next session and that becomes two weeks and then four and then six and then the campaign fizzles. Right. And you came along and were like, guys, I'm not gonna do prep work if I don't have time. This is gonna be our casual fun game. And I remember part of me, as of an epic world builder, I was um. like, you're not allowed to say that. Where's your 20 pages of history, you plebeian? You know, like, I was like, this is scandalous. And then, of course, you started running a regular game. And because of you set up, like, there's history in this world. Your fucking bumpkin characters in this fallen empire don't know it. Mm -hmm. And the, the, the infrastructure of of magarchical of, of you know magocratic you know wizard empire has fallen mm -hmm. so all the fucking magitech that this place ran on is gone mm -hmm. and now goblins have emerged from their warrens deep under the earth and this is a an extinction event you're in a in basically what's like a, almost like the flavor of a zombie survival horror but with goblins mm -hmm. and the whole attitude of it was like was like hey the, the uh, uh, you are not six chosen ones you're a group of people trying to not get killed by goblins. Yeah. <laughs> and it was so fucking fun right away. But what I love about it, and this is, I think, a huge lesson for people at home of, I think the lessons take away from Goblin Trouble, for me at least, were go to your players and tell them what your situation is. Mm -hmm. Be like, guys, I'm not, I don't, I don't have a lot of prep time. I'm working a full-time job. Great. It set our expectations. Go forward and say, this is the type of campaign this is. We're doing survival horror. Mm -hmm. um, not only survival horror, but also a lot of weird body horror stuff. There ended up being a lot of weird, well, I like, because of the way I was doing the, the game, anytime I sort of had an idea, it just like went into the world somewhere. I added it to my list of random things and like, there was a chance you'd run into it. And it ended up, you ran into all this like mutation stuff and you found out like, um, the goblins in this world were actually mutated, like, uh, uh, I think they're mutated halflings from, like, yeah. ages long past, like, um, and it was possible for other people to, like, gain these mutations and stuff, like... It got weird. Yeah, it was cool. Uh, uh, it was a it was a extremely Jack Covell setting, and that it was that type of monster. It's a fucked up type of this other creature. Where <laughs> we fought some horrifying goblin Etten in a past that was like regenerating. Uh, all that was that was a really good example, actually, because that was specifically way above your level at the time. Like, yeah, that was that was uh, there was this town that was being blockaded, um, and these two huge go goblinoid creatures that were. Like again, it was I stole like the stat blocks from other creatures, but they were like these huge like malformed uh, goblinoid things, yeah. um, way above your challenge rating, uh, uh, like by the stats of the game. But I remember like because you sort of scouted it out and you knew that like this might not be a balanced 
encounter, these things are actually really scary. And if they hit us once, they'll probably kill us. Meant that like you did the whole uh, like climbed onto the ridge above them and like knocked one into the sea to fight the sea serpent that you knew was there. Like um, it was extremely well done, and it it made uh, to me the narrative skill of a dungeon master is the only thing a dungeon master is trying to do because the PCs are telling the story. They're the main characters. Yeah. Your job as a dungeon master is to create mood and to the degree that, that you were able to do that in Goblin Trouble or, or sorry, I should say the degree you were able to do that at in Goblin Trouble was profound because you told because of tools both in character and out of character. Out of character you were like hey guys it's these fucking tables. I'm not taking it easy on you this is how dangerous the world is. So we ran into a black dragon and there was this immediate thing, there wasn't this thing of like, we're chosen ones, this is part of the adventure and yeah. Jack would never, like that attitude of like, God never gives you a problem you can't handle. No, no, <laughs> he, he can and will. Like, oh yeah, oh yeah. Uh, this God is is not even cruel, this God is relying on randomized monster tables, <laughs> even worse than yeah. cruel. <laughs> and, it, and even like, it ended up being fun for me to run that game in a way I wasn't really expecting, where it was like, I knew the things that you could run into, but it was just as much a surprise to me of like, like I wonder what's gonna happen this time. Like, I know all of this like crazy, creepy, scary stuff. I know all this weird stuff that can that can happen in this world, and I don't know what's gonna happen. Like, it was it was that made it really fun for me to run that game too. Uh, it was so fun to be in that game with all the the horror stuff, and then also like our our characters bonding. I love my, my character Gyalfi is this like lawful evil giant enforcer was so fun. We played with our friends Quinn and um, uh, Griffin was like the wizard in that campaign. Mm. We had it lost. I became a mute. You gave me a cursed weapon. I had this cursed axe and I remember that uh, you kept saying like as you swing this you're rolling constitution saving throws you're rolling dexterity saving throws and I kept going like ah, it's such a good fucking axe it yeah. didn't even have a mind control it was just like we're in it was yeah it was just a very powerful it like healed you every time you you hit with it like, yeah a lot. <laughs> a lot it was one of these things where which all, all, in honestly in my mind is a better mechanic for cursed items than like make a wisdom saving throw it controls your mind it's like here's something so fucking broken that it's gonna be impossible Possible for you, the player, to not want to use yeah. it, and I fucked up one of my saving throws and became a mutant, and like crystals grew out of my body and my head sunk into my chest, and like, yeah, it was like oh, stark and terrifying. Yeah. And, and I remember that was that was kind of cool too because it was um, it like narratively felt like a like uh, like a heartbreaking random chance thing because you were kind of on this journey to be like. Um, uh, like a tyrannical leader, but something of a leader to these other uh, giants. The giants were sort of these like, yeah. they were the soldiers of the old empire and they were sort of scattered around. Um, but then you becoming a mutant made it this like heartbreaking, like maybe you would have been the chosen one, but instead you've turned into this monster. Like, yeah. and the other giants, the reaction Are, to you and stuff. They're like, reacting like I'm, like I'm a freak and it was like, it, heartbreaking. Was, it was really heartbreaking. Yeah. And, uh, but, but again, this, attitude of the game of you I think there's a tremendous amount of commendable work there of you being like here's my bandwidth I'm gonna crib maps and stuff from the internet and I'm gonna like use these random tables this is what we're gonna do and what you ended up producing in this thing that was almost like an act of humility as a dungeon master being like here's my bandwidth here's what I can do is 
you played a regular game, which for any DM is a fucking feat yeah. <laughs> to be able to like regularly play. We got to like some high level, I think, right? I forget yeah, what we got. I mean, we got like like seventh or eighth level somewhere say, around there, which yeah. is pretty good. That's, like, yeah, it's really decent. Um, um, I, I think another thing that uh, that I think really worked about that game was like. Um, like, when I first started that game, I was a little self-conscious about, like, just taking a bunch of stuff from published adventures and, like, repurposing it. Um, but it was, like, kind of like, eh, let's, like, give it a shot. Like, mm-hmm. sorry. <laughs> I don't know. Yeah. Um, and it ended up being just really helpful. And it was, like, um, the tiniest bit of, like, a change of, uh, uh, like, the, the circumstances, the change of the setting meant that, like, cool, this, like, published dungeon is now a ruin it's like maybe it was a, it's a temple in like the published dungeon it was really easy for me to look at that and be like okay this was a temple now it's overgrown or something like and th- exactly like you you cribbing stuff and making your life easier rather than in other words you looking at this societal image of a game master we have of this like long suffering noblesse oblige like I prep and slave away for my players and Mm. the long hours have and you were like fuck that and ended up producing something of a higher quality than almost any of the games I've played in oh shucks but truly (laughs) it was so and what I love too is and this is I think a really great lesson for DMs that are daunted by workload is by the time we had played 10, 15, 20 sessions in that world, the world building of Goblin Trouble was not even as rich, richer than a lot of other campaigns. Because guess what? World building happens at its best at the table. Mm -hmm. Like by the final sessions, we had learned a lot of stuff. Even though you had been like, I'm not doing a lot of prep. We're not doing a big info dump. You're in a settlement. Goblins are here. We're starting. (laughs) By the end, we had found this weird submerged alien spacecraft. There was like weird stuff with like golem robots. We were learning more about the ancient wizard empire. We found like, because there were like artifacts that hit hinted at this world and what you did a clever thing of being like I don't want to spend a lot of time prepping this but as things come up I will of course use them to explain things in the background of the world and just you improvising through player character backstory the lore of magical items we found and the the motivations of enemies we were finding this rich world background became constructed in the negative space of the little information we did have, which was honestly so cool to build your campaign's backstory through how we were piecing information together. Yeah, it was, and it was really fun for me too, because it was like, like I said, it was like, I didn't know how that was gonna happen. It wasn't me explaining stuff, it was me like, like having ideas and putting it in the world and, and stuff like that. The other thing I wanted to like highlight about that was like um, a big thing starting that game was I felt like I was asking a lot of the players. Like I was specifically like, hey guys, I'm not gonna be able to carry this game. Like mm-hmm. um, I'm not gonna be able to keep it, I'm not gonna try to keep this exciting. I'm gonna run the world. Like it's up to you to figure out your own motivations, to interact with each other, to like, um, uh, to play your character and decide your own goals. And, like, I think that's one of the reasons that that game worked so well was that, like, um, everybody was willing as players to be like, okay, nobody's going to make this exciting for me. I'm here to, like, play an adventure with people. And it's it's um, it was not me, like, 
taking you on a journey. It was me just being like, hey, I'm a backdrop, like play your characters. I knew that because we were all good friends and we played D&D that it would be fun to play together. Mm -hmm. um, and I felt a lot like I was sort of relying on that of like, like we know and have fun uh, playing our characters together and sort of letting that happen uh, uh, would be fun without sort of the, the workload on my part. There's a lot of trust you have to have in your players mm. to be able to say like, you guys are gonna run, you guys are the engine of this, not me. Yeah. I'm the body, I'm everything else going, I'll make the world happen. Yeah. But you guys, and what's, I think, looking on that as a player, of course, nothing is more gratifying as a player to me at least, than being like, the adventure we're on was our idea. Yeah. Like, we... It, it ended up being really cool where like, by the end of that game, I feel like if we had kept playing it, it was changing from a survival, um, like a survival horror type of game to kind of an empire building game. Like, the, the progression of sort of like, oh, we're surviving out here, um, you sort of, uh, you played a big part in in uh, like breaking this blockade of uh, yeah. a town um, and then sort of like went into this position of leadership there and started taking over and like you were this lawful evil giant and it was sort of like the beginnings of like tyranny and like uh, like these people need someone to take charge to survive like it was a it was really cool. crazy lesson in the psychology of why do people turn to lawful evil mm. people for answers? And it's like in the situation where we had all these chaotic evil goblins running around and this like wizard and his like giant enforcer show up and be like, we are strong enough to keep you safe. Submit to our rule and we will stop the goblins. And a bunch of farmers being like, yep, we'll do it. Okay. <laughs> okay. <Yeah. laughs> and you go like, oh shit. And there was a lot of scary lessons in that, and in a good way of yeah. like examining the psychology of how and why people submit to, to the rule of wicked people. Mm -hmm. Because it's like, we'll hey, you hate goblins, don't you? Well, as long as you do everything we say and never step out of line, we'll keep you safe from the goblins. Mm -hmm. And it was creepy, and it, but it was it was very, I don't know, illuminating to play. Um, uh, uh, but again, I think that it's like to your credit as a dungeon master, and I think that that's something that requires empathy. If you're playing with brand new players, they might want a wizard to show up and say, mm, there are demons at the edge of town. You must find the soul stone. Uh -huh. And they go, got it, <laughs> right? Um, but there's that attitude, and I think it comes from a huge LARPing background, because we were both at Wayfinder for a mm -hmm. long time doing our LARPing thing. Um, I remember the first time I was like 15 playing a game and realizing that my leader had died. I had a magical artifact that the entire fate of the world depended on and something broke in my brain and I went, no one's gonna tell you what to do. You just have to do something. Mm -hmm. And I think there is a moment of experience that players get to. That, that experience can come from role-playing games, or it can come from something else, theater, creative yeah. writing, whatever, but there's a level of experience people will get to where suddenly the, the sh balance shifts and railroads and having a thing you're supposed to be doing becomes less fun than you going like, hey, this world is like our world in that you need to answer the question mm. of what am I supposed to be doing for yourself? Yeah, 
that's actually like the the um, that experience of like, oh, I have agency here, and there are repercussions for my actions. Um, I mean, that's honestly something I like about working in the video game industry now. Is like games as a uh, as a medium is all about sort of like if you have agency in a narrative, it allows sort of the repercussions for that agency to feel a lot more personal. And like um, D and D is a great game for that because it is like you can choose to do whatever you whatever you want, and it's sort of like the game to me is really like cool and fulfilling and growth inspiring when. Uh, like the repercussions for those actions are are like seen and felt, and you see kind of what it's like to to uh, to make choices like that. Yeah, to simulate your your to feel that degree of agency is intoxicating, and I think that there is an element as well of like when you're on railroads, the challenges are: does the train keep going or does it stop? Yeah, you know, like it's monodirectional, uh -huh. and so when you're playing in railroads, again, for new players, I recommend railroads. It's when you're dealing with the game system and pretending to be somebody. Uh -huh. Sometimes it's nice just to be like, okay, I know what I'm supposed to be doing, and my agency is like, which of my abilities I use in this fight, or like mm -hmm. it's really you're boxed in, and that can feel comforting. But I remember in Goblin Trouble that idea of like, okay, we've survived this goblin attack, but this town's destroyed. We can't stay here. Mm -hmm. Well, we heard about a town to the north of here that rumor had said was doing better. That's mm. not an adventure hook. That is just you being like, here's the only thing. Yeah. Like, like <laughs> we can go west to this town that we, like, I remember there was one great thing that happened. We were in a town on a crossroads, and you literally said something along the lines of like, you know the goblin horde is headed west of here. You've heard a rumor that the town to the west of here is doing really well. There's a town to the north of here that has survived a couple of goblin attacks. There are two roads going south and east. You don't know where they go. Mm -hmm. And so we're sitting there in this ruins, like bloodied and kind of survived, and we're like, okay, here's our information. East, question mark. South, question mark. West, doing okay, but we know that it's not gonna be doing okay for yeah. long. And it's also like, the goblins went that way, so I don't know, we also wanna go that do way. Do we also wanna go that way? Cause you know, do, do we find a city under siege? Like literally you, you being like, you have incomplete information and you still need to make a choice, mm -hmm. which was like the most, weirdly there's more agency as a character when you're like, I only have bad information. Yeah, and that also, by the way, that was so fun for me because I like, I knew what was down, like uh, I knew what was uh, like to the south and to the east. Um, and like, I sort of knew, uh, I had concrete ideas about like what you would find in these places, but it was kind of really cool to be like, Oh, I wonder which one they're gonna go to. <laughs> like, ooh, they could go anywhere. <laughs> yeah, it's great. I mean, it was it's cool. Uh, it was really, really fun. Um, uh, oh, I love Goblin Trouble. Um, we'll move over to some audience questions now. Um, uh, if you're watching this, you could have been watching it two weeks earlier. If you sign up for Dropout, go sign up for Dropout, and you can see Adventuring Academy earlier, a whole bunch of other great content, Dimension 20, you gotta check it out. Uh, uh, also, all of our uh, questions are submitted on our Dropout exclusive Discord server. So if you wanna ask questions, you gotta get on the Discord. Um, this uh, is from Shield9. Thanks, Shield9. Thanks, Shield9. How do you create an original universe that is different from past creations of yours? I feel like I'm inhibited creatively as I'm too attached to characters and universes to just let them go. Mm. 
Um, this is a great question. Jack and I have a lot of experience with this, both having run multiple tabletop campaign settings and also having run uh, multiple, I would say, uh, we did a lot of LARPs. We were both LARP writers. Yeah. Uh, I think my my initial reaction to that is kind of like, uh, uh, I never want to do, like, run the same thing again because I can sort of relate to that as like, oh, I did a high fantasy game. I'll do another high fantasy game, but I really like the stuff from the first high fantasy game that I did. So, like, what am I going to... I get it from that perspective. Mm-hmm. Um and like my kind of reaction is like uh don't i wouldn't do the same thing again like there's a game that i'm i'm right now sort of like putting together that we should start playing pretty soon Hell yeah, of yeah. like the the western fantasy like um mm-hmm. like like cowboys and gunslingers and stuff fantasy mm-hmm. um and that's like it's not at all like this dark fantasy um survival thing like goblin trouble was and it's not at all like the um Uh, Like, I ran this, like, apocalyptic fantasy game before that. And, like, um, because it's sort of a different theme, it, number one, it's sort of, like, exciting to be like, okay, like, I'm doing, this is something different. Um, And it also feels like I'm not tempted to reuse or, like, um, hold on to the stuff from those other settings because this is really trying to do something else entirely. Like, yeah. I love that. Well, what I love too about that is I think that, let me put this, you've created a lot of worlds that were really, Goblin Trouble was extremely different from like, uh, remember Sid we played for a little while? Sid was a druidic apocalypse. Yeah. Basically like a bunch of druid, there was a highly civilized world Mm -hmm. and a group of druids it was kind of like a like a Gormenghast, like uh, yes. everywhere was it was super overpopulated, like mm. everywhere was cities. It was like high fantasy, but it was still like all it was cities, all urban. And this cabal of druids like force did like a tenth level spell and forcefully returned the world to wilderness by having like an Yggdrasil tree just like crack the world in half uh-huh. and like take over. And it was that's a very different campaign setting from like Walking on Sunshine that we worked on together, which was mm. your insane pulp time travel game. But what's interesting is stylistically, I can connect all of those games. It's almost, I don't know, it's like it's like a directorial style. Like, like you can watch five seconds of a movie and know that it's a Coen <laughs> Brothers movie uh-huh. or know that it's a Wes Anderson movie. Your games, games at tabletop or LARP have a strong style to them even though you didn't repeat yourself in terms of themes. Does that make sense? Yeah. Like I mean, I think that makes sense to hear because I think I, I actually kind of think about that. Like I, I, um, I get excited about doing, doing new stuff when it is like a I start with the theme. Yeah. Like the, the, um, the reason I'm sort of putting together this Western game is I was thinking like, oh, like I've seen like Victorian fantasy with magic and stuff. I've seen like medieval fantasy and modern day fantasy, but I haven't seen a lot of like Western, like mm-hmm. uh, um, Western fantasy. Yeah. Um, uh, and I just kind of like wanted to explore that. Explore that's that. kind of a new thing to do. <laughs> I love that. Uh, and I think that's, I, I think that's good. Like to, to the, to the user's question, like having elements of your style that keep cropping up, I think is good. Like it, it's not wrong to have areas of interest and focus uh, as mm-hmm. a DM. I think it's just about like 
being able to tell, you can tell new stories in the same style, mm-hmm. right? Um, uh, and I think that's a fun thing to be able to do. I also think it's interesting too, talking about style real quickly, because Jack, you are, in addition to being a writer, you're also a, uh, a visual artist. And we, I think that that often gets passed over a lot in terms of its importance. Like when I think of how much I loved the Planescape setting back in second edition D&D, mm-hmm. Tony Dietrich-Lizzi is Love the that. is yeah. the reason that Planescape <laughs> was so good. I mean, amongst great design and great writers as well, mm-hmm. but like having a uh, because so much of the experience at the table is about mood and style, I feel like the visuals of like compelling art and I think also you see the reason that part of D&D's huge resurgence in this era has to do with the incredible thriving fan art community mm. that exists and people sharing art of these things. Um uh do you think, you know, D&D is words shared at a table, but I still think the visual component of the game, even if it's only in your mind's eye, is a hugely critical component. We have a, a little secret Eridane uh, uh, group that we're all a part of, and a lot of what we do in that group is share visual, like, reference art as, like, yeah. inspo for the world. Uh, when you're designing games, how, obviously you work as a character artist, but uh, when you're designing your own tabletop or LARP games, wh- what part does visual art play in that process for you? I mean, I I, I think I, uh, uh, I sort of think very visually about um, the sort of creative stuff and, like, uh, uh, um, I don't know, it's kind of hard to say. Like, um, I haven't really thought too much about that mm-hmm. um i guess it is like a big uh uh sort of like um like sort of imagining the the fantasy world in my head playing D for all of these years is a, like the same skill as sort of like imagining what like a character in the video game is going to look like and sort of like right. um uh, like I've always found, I've told you this before, but like uh, your style of, of DMing is like you do very vivid like visual descriptions that are super evocative of like seeing something in my head. Mm-hmm. Um, uh, even though like the the actually sort of making a visual art is like less your your specialization. I can, you know? I every I it's a very interesting thing because I feel like visuals are hugely important to me because it's all about setting a scene mm-hmm. and immersion, making your players feel like they're really there. Yeah. And so much of fantasy is that fantasia, like I'm seeing something I've never seen before. Mm-hmm. Uh, I remember the scene, particularly there was actually a scene where you were like, Brennan, if you, you know, if this comedy thing doesn't work out, you should be like an art director. Yeah. Was, we were doing <laughs> a scene set in the realms of myth and there was this desert where these sand dunes were being moved by wind and I was narrating that as the dunes were moving through this like windswept area, they were changing color, but the sand was changing color as though there were actual clearly bordered areas of space where like, as soon as the dune moves into this area, the top becomes bright red as the middle is orange and the bottom is blue mm-hmm. on like crisp lines of sand as though these areas in space are making it these colors and as the dunes mm. move they shift and the sand is moving but the areas where the color stays that way are static yeah um, like that's such a cool visual like, <laughs> like i want to see that in like in something you know that's um i mean it also makes me kind of think of like uh, uh 
a thing that I kind of learned about myself in school was like um, when I was doing uh, like early, I, I transferred, <laughs> uh, changed majors like a million times in school. But uh, when I was doing fine art stuff where the point of the art was more about like, oh, what are you trying to say with your, your visual art? Um, it actually made me sort of realize like my interest in visual arts is like as it's tied to narrative. I like sort of like character design as a way of like saying something about a character. And I like yeah. uh, I like visual art that to me inspires kind of a story in my head or like um, uh, like an art a piece of art that I see and it like I can sort of imagine what's what else is like, outside of the frame um and that is sort of the same thing as kind of we're talking about of like um uh visual arts as it's tied to narrative is to me like really closely linked because that's like why i like making art is like to try to tell a story visually i think that's beautiful and i think it's a great way for people to conceive their campaigns as well because every campaign you've run was dominated by these strong visuals you know like goblin trouble had all this mutation and and weird body horror stuff sid was like part of our adventure was in a forest growing on the branch of a world tree mm -hmm. and it, we only realized that we were like miles in the sky some like weeks after journeying across like everything was dominated by these truly like awesome surreal fantasy visuals and it was i feel like communicated stuff that would have been harder to communicate dryly through like, like you're saying, like if I t give you an image of this moment or this scene or this character, I can communicate so much more information than if I tried to word by word piece together a description of that, yeah. right? I think that's like, uh, uh, it's a it's kind of an interesting thing of like, when I, I take a minute to sort of self reflect on my own uh, like how I like to run games and sort of my strengths and weaknesses as a DM. It's like, um, like I like running games that sort of like uh, evoke a feeling of being in a place. So like visuals and like I try to make a point to like describe what it like smells like and it feels like and mm -hmm. like um, it's like I feel like my games like uh, they're carried by like that and all the voices. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> Whereas like I think your games are like these uh, like beautiful intricate narrative things which uh, like for me is a lot harder to do but it just means that our games have a very different kind of like um, we're both leaning into our strengths as like uh, uh, this is what kind of comes naturally mm -hmm. uh, to us trying to run these games. I think that's beautiful and I think that like so again to the question like relying on a style is not a bad thing. I think you should always try to tell new stories, but having style and having things that work for you and tools that you like to come back to. This is a weird analogy, see if you can follow this. Uh, it's okay to keep coming back to the same tools over and over as long as you're using them to build different things. That's how I would put that. Yeah, very very well put. Thank you, appreciate it. Um, this next question is from Rhythmica. Thanks Rhythmica. I've been DMing for about a year, and I've noticed a problem. I can't seem to let my players die. Mm. They keep putting themselves in situations where death is certain, and I always bail them out. How can I let myself be the bad guy and let their characters die? Whoa. Mm. Jack. Mm. How to kill characters. Um, well, I think the, the 
first thing is like if if I wouldn't say there's necessarily something wrong with uh, uh, having a game where like the uh, uh, risk of death is not a big part of sort of the type of game you're trying to run. Yeah, that's not necessary. Like, I don't think there's any reason for sort of an external judgment on that. Um, it does sort of undercut some of the stakes of of conflict and stuff. Like, I think one of the reasons that. Um, uh, I mean, this is sort of a, a grander <laughs> statement, but I think like uh, the reasons that like uh, like violence comes up so much in the narratives of D and D is like it's sort of like the ultimate high stakes, where like yeah. um, uh, character death is sort of like the um, the ultimate highest stakes. So it's it's very exciting to sort of risk that. Um, I don't know what to say other than just like. You got to do it. You, you know? got to kill them. Um, and it, I think it's I think it's also important to be like, you don't kill them. Just listen to like, uh, uh, I think the, the strength of D&D as opposed to, I remember when we were younger, we played like, um, like free form role playing where everybody just said what their characters did and decided sort of like, there was no dice rolling. And like, I think to me, the real thing that the dice and like the stats in your character sheet add to those games is a um, a concreteness outside of someone deciding something. So yeah. like, it's not the DM deciding whether you're gonna live or die. Um, it's like, I think Goblin Trouble, I really leaned into this where it was like, um, I'm just sort of arbitrating like, there is this creature here, this creature has these concrete stats and it has like, there are rule systems to determine uh, if this creature grabs you and crushes you, or if you dodge out of the way, and like, um, I think the the like the thing that that's really bringing to these games for me is like um, is those stakes. It's sort of like there is a concreteness to the world outside of the DM just deciding something, um, and like. That makes it. That makes the stakes high. That makes it scary when somebody like like I remember lots of times in Aridane, um, I feel like that's kind of the attitude that that you go into these like high stakes um, encounters, especially at really high levels where it's you can sort of um, insta kill. You know, yeah, yeah. It's, it's a lot. It's a lot. I think it's riskier at low level to be like, whoops, you're killed. We played like um, a week and a half ago. M's character almost died. So close, but for the indomitability spell, it was it was yeah. a death effect. It was it was yeah. like it was it was really close, and that like the stakes were high because it was like um, you went into that being like okay in the in the setting of this world, these are like the spirits and creatures living in this place, and um, like even though it was a a, a way more sort of like um, like beautifully built narrative up to this moment. Um, in like the moment of conflict, uh, you sort of give up and be like, "Hey, I built what this situation is, and it's not really up to you like whether someone lives or dies." It's that's the part where you, you the rule system is like. I think that's a great point. I think as a DM, if you're feeling really sad and scared about pulling the trigger, say that to your PCs. And I think what you can, I think in Aridane, even in the past couple of years, I've gotten better about being like almost like battle is starting. I don't know what's going to happen. This isn't yeah. me making these calls anymore. 
Like I made the calls about who your enemies were. I made you guys made some calls about how you were going to treat them. Uh-huh. Some shit went down and some role playing stuff. We've all rolled initiative now. Now we don't know. Yeah, and I remember even like in in those situations, you're kind of on like our side. Like you'll be like, hey. I'm sorry, you've got to roll a saving throw and like please roll high. Like <laughs> please roll or, high. or 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 stuff like rolling attack rolls for these like you're kind of on our side where you roll things out in the open it's like hey, this character is like blasting you with a bunch of magic. I got to roll a lot of dice now. Like <laughs> Like fingers crossed. Truly, I'm, I'm rooting for you. I'm rooting you know? for, truly, the big in terms of like speaking in internet memes for a second. The biggest DM mood, big DM mood of all, is the scene in Aladdin where the genie's been taken by Jafar and he holds the thing over his eyes and does the finger gun yeah, to like, do this. Ah, I can't sorry. look while I do it. <laughs> that is the biggest DM mood of all time. Um, and uh, uh, but I remember, yeah, I rolled like we had this. We had a scene that we played in this game a little while ago, which was like ten years in the making, f- when we were all just like out of college. Uh, M's character uh, Ippolito sold his soul to luck and destiny, and they were like, "On your sixteenth birthday, we're going to come and collect." Mm-hmm. And then M, this last time, they had to roll. A bunch of incredible roles. It was a scene ten years in the making to bamboozle and hoodwink and flim flam luck and destiny themselves. And we were all like at the table, like like M was there, and they were they were rolling like okay, rolling a bluff for Ippolito, (laughs) like I hope I roll okay because I've been planning this for ten years. (laughs) If they don't, if they catch me in this lie. Uh, my soul is like forfeit or something <laughs> like it's bad <laughs> and it actually fucking worked and as these rolls came up we were exploding from the table and screaming because it was like these six or seven rolls in a row that determined the fate of this character's soul mm-hmm. and here's the here's the issue you can play a game where it's explicit between you and your players that death is not on the table. That's okay. You can all say like, hey, no one is here at this table to watch their character die. I think that's okay. Mm-hmm. The The issue is for, for other players, and I think this includes us and Aridane, mm-hmm. we know that we don't get the table exploding nat 20s. We don't get the moments of, I can't believe it unless we know that death yeah. is an option. And and the other thing I would say is like uh, uh, sort of my longest running character, Exonymous in Eridane, was he died for a long time. Yeah. And uh, I remember talking to you like, hey, the game isn't as fun for me not playing Exonymous. Exonymous. Yeah. And like that was just true. I like really liked that that there was something about that character that was um, kind of unique to me. Yeah. Um, I remember, like, I, I often gravitate towards, like, these, like, sneaky or, like, spellcasting characters, and Exonymous was just sort of, like, a big brute, sort of, like, trying to find his definition for right and wrong, and, like, um, like, I basically, I played a bunch of tricksy characters, and then I played a kind of stupid character, mm-hmm. and it was so liberating and, and, and cool. But like in that situation, we did kind of work together to be like, okay, well like death is a really permanent thing in this setting. So like, uh, uh, we don't want to undercut sort of the, the gravity of that. Um, but you know, we're also still playing a fun game together and we kind of worked, we, we, I remember we had some conversations about kind of like, okay, well like how can the narrative be steered slightly in a way, um, uh, 
for me to play like a version or a part of that character or like yeah um and, and that that felt very sort of collaborative on us because I I feel like I'm a very I can be a very emotional D and D player yeah. where I was like uh, uh it, it was like really hard <laughs> when my, that character died like well and I think it's telling too and I want to talk a lot about like. This question has to be answered differently for each and every campaign. Because let me be clear, it was a big deal when Exonimus died. Mm -hmm. The campaign we played prior to that, Storm City, you were hurling your characters into death God. nonstop. Dude, that was the character I had like uh, uh, become an NPC because he had like been driven mad and stuff. You had a character like, get like shredded by a weird psychic engine oh, and turned yeah. into a thought monster. Yep. It was the the point is this. <laughs> I remember characters that you played because Storm City was this sprawling noir intrigue like urban fantasy like urban uh -huh. high fantasy game where everyone was playing like three or four PCs at the same time. So you were playing PCs where you're like, my name is like Laszlo Jones. I have a death wish. <laughs> like truly or well, like, like, like that was, I was Laszlo Jones was a tragic story. And he started as a, tra you know, he's an elf who like chopped his own ears off to look like a human in yeah. this like human centric city. He was like trying to be a knight, but also was getting hungry and like robbed people. Like it really like, not a good guy. A deeply like, cowardly, self-loathing person. Incredibly cowardly. So cowardly that he was driven mad eventually by like and his I remember fear. In the and in the thing of that setting, everyone was playing so many characters, which is a good I think a good thing. If if you want to make death a big part of your campaign, um, talk about what people's replacement characters will be. Because I think as a DM, you owe that. To, if you're gonna be like, hey, this game's hyper lethal, don't wait until someone's lost their only key into the game to talk about what playing another character will look like, I think. Mm -hmm. But for, you know, in Storm City, there were so many characters running around that honestly, for everyone, it felt like they were playing multiple NPCs. So you guys were real laissez-faire about these people fucking like, blah, I'm just fucking getting axed left and right. I still, I still remember the first time uh, two of Connor's characters, I think, met each other. <laughs> and then he just had a conversation being the two characters. We sent him into a corner to talk yeah. to himself. Go talk yeah. to yourself. Uh, and he did. He did. He had, he he had sock puppets. Uh, but that was true. And I remember his characters, the same character died twice in the same way. But but then we got into Aridane and... It was a big, because Aridane has been such an epic arc following these specific people. Mm. And Exonimus is not even the first person to die. Mm. Connor's character was the first person to die. Owen, the, the Hobbit prince, died. Yeah. And your character died in the same setting where his character was finally resurrected. Because I made, I was basically very clear of like, look, death is huge and permanent here. Uh -huh. And if you want to resurrect somebody, that's not like a seventh level spell or whatever. That is unique, miraculous magic. Mm. And you guys spent four years of real lifetime adventuring to get Owen back. And I yeah. as a DM was like, cool, Owen is a messiah and prophet to his people. This party's sorcerer is bending all of his arcane will to bringing his friend back. I'll let this be a one-off miracle. Mm -hmm. And and literally, it's like founded a religion. As yeah. I don't know if you guys know this, but resurrection tends to found religions in real life, <laughs> and so it stands to reason that that wouldn't be like a no, a, no like a small <laughs> no deal. No big deal. Somebody came back from, from the, the dead. dead. <laughs> <laughs> um, and then Exonimus died, and it was very it was a very similar thing narratively, where I were like I was like, look, I only allowed a resurrection to happen because this other guy was literally like a prophet, mm -hmm. and we talked about it for Exonimus, and I. 
so by the time Exonimus died, we knew that death was on the table. A PC mm -hmm. had already died. Yeah. And the way the scene played out, it was like incredibly heartbreaking. You know, mm -hmm. like Nick Marini tried to save your life. He was one away from doing it. He yeah. rolled a 19 when he needed a 20. Mm -hmm. And it was this, but I remember the, the, the whole way of it working out was like, it was a couple rounds. It was not a surprise insta-kill. You were petrified. And then there were one or two rounds where yeah. there, it was, in other words, I think to the, to the person who asked this, if you're a DM, um, put it more in the dice's hands. Like in that instance, I was like, okay, Death is on its way. You guys have two rounds. Mm -hmm. Griffin opened that book of magic and had to roll and like rolled bad. He's like, mm -hmm. he and he passed out from like the arcane power of this thing. Uh -huh. There were a couple ways out of that. Like yeah. it wasn't, it wasn't just you. It wasn't just me. It was like us, the dice, other people's actions. And we all watched this thing happen. Yeah. And it, uh, it, but it ended up in the story now where Exonimus has come back as this demigod, which again, took years of real life adventuring yeah. and ended up with one of my favorite adventure arcs of the thing, which was meeting the two halves of Exonimus's fractured soul. Uh -huh. And like, I don't know. I, I think that death is not the end. In all of these worlds, the afterlife are like real places. Resurrection is not the only answer. In Exonimus's case, his time in this plane is limited. He's a demigod. Yeah. He, and he was like, a, he came back as, as a spirit that it was like a twisted part of him. Mm -hmm. And he was another, like the other part of him was separate. And like, he never came back to life, but like there were elements of him that continued as kind of new and different characters. Yeah, absolutely. The, the other thing I was going to say is that I just thought of at, um, thinking about Wayfinder of our like history at, at LARP camp, mm -hmm. um, it's not necessarily heartbreaking to have your character die. Sometimes it's really fun. Yeah. Sometimes it's really fun to be like, oh, wow, my character's dead. I, I guess I'm a new character now. Like that's exciting. And it's, uh, I think there's something special to the end of a character's arc, whether that's like, um, like the chosen one, like saving the world, that's an end of a character arc. But also the end of a character arc is like someone who could have been great, tragically, you know, through a, a fluke of luck, one bad decision or something like uh, uh, is killed and their story is cut short is like, that's kind of a beautiful end to a character also. Like I can't imagine Eridane as a story without Owen and Exonymous's death. Like you, like the scene that like you and Nick Marini had in death, when <laughs> Nick like apologized for not being able to save Exonimus. It's one of the most beautiful pieces of role playing I've ever seen. You, I, I think that if you're telling a story of epic high fantasy, high fantasy includes death in its storytelling. Mm -hmm. Death doesn't have to be part of every story, but it might have to be a part of every epic fantasy story. You know what I mean? Mm -hmm. Or sto stories about swords and magic and c battle and war. It, that's a part of it. Mm -hmm. And I think that what you can do are, the, the simple practical things you can do is talk to your players. If you're reluctant as a DM, talk to them about that and be like, hey, I'm reluctant to pull the, pull the trigger. Set up circumstances where you're rolling in front of the board. You know, the death saves mechanic in 5e is a great mechanic for it because, you know, they drop to zero. And then and then it really is up to the dice. It's like a 50-50 or slightly better than 50-50 chance. Mm -hmm. Like, you know, you, you as a DM can surrender it to the dice. And then I think also there's an element there where you... 
um, have to, like Jack was saying, at a certain point, just take the jump because you, you because the game starts paying a price in other ways. Of course, in the moment, there's a part of you saying, well, just don't kill them. Save them somehow. Bail, bail, bail. Don't mm-hmm. let the character die. Of course you're going to feel that because you're a feeling human being. And of course, I'm mm-hmm. my PC's biggest fan. Mm-hmm. I never want them to go. But the price gets paid elsewhere if you bail them out. And it, it, it every nat 20 is diminished. Every yeah. success in the face of danger is diminished. You take the shine off every other combat and every other risk mm-hmm. in that style of storytelling. In violent, epic fantasy storytelling, the shine comes off of everything when the threat of death goes away. Yeah, unfortunate. I mean, the other thing that and we're really like like going on about this question, but it, I mean, it's a really it's good a question. It's a really good question, yeah. Um, the other thing that I would say is like, in my experience playing with you, it's like uh, something I really like is sort of, like in Exonymous's case, uh, he failed, I rolled like a one on a saving throw and got turned to ice. And then there was like these two rounds of like, hey, everyone can try stuff. And everybody like almost rolled enough, but not quite. And then... That was it. Like, but it it wasn't like I fail my saving throw and my character's dead. Because I remember, it, like in that in the style of game that you're running with Eridane, um, it it is this big epic story and it is a big deal to die. So there were kind of like a lot of chances to um, uh, to make it, and it just barely missed all of them, which made it like um, no one's character died offhand. Yes. People's characters died in in uh, uh, like tragic ways, and I will say this too: like the person that killed Exonymous was the main villain of the campaign. Yeah, in the in the confrontation where they were revealed, narrative, and they said something so horrendously evil and revealed something so awful. And Jack was playing this lawful good character that surprised the shit out of me by launching an attack on them. It was like yeah. not even a verbal response. Like they say that, I attack. And I remember be, in my head being like, oh no, Jack. Because I knew that the dude <laughs> was secretly this like um, villainous uh, demigod question mark abomination. And you guys were eighth level. And it was a thing where you did something in character that still surprised me. I And then I went like, as a DM, I backed myself into a corner. I was like, this guy's an evil demigod of death. Jack's just taking a swing at him because your character was broken to bits. You actually bypassed his damage reduction and like hurt him. Smashed him. So <laughs> it wasn't the thing where he could just like knock you back. You hurt him. He was hurt. And yeah. it went like, I went like, oh no. And I was like, okay, roll initiative. And then all of us were at the mercy of the dice. But I think to answer your question, if you're reluctant as a DM, yeah, if you're playing the type of story that's so epic that characters should narratively shouldn't die unless it's a big deal, you can like I like uh, the character Harfang, the villain there, didn't do uh, uh, not everything he did in that fight. He did a lot of stuff for show in that fight. Yeah, he turned you to ice. He didn't like scramble to run up and smash you as soon as possible. He did a big villainous thing. It's a big epic campaign, uh-huh. and everyone had two rounds to try stuff as he slowly strode towards you, picked you up over his head, and then destroyed you. Which I think as a DM is me being like, this is big and villainous. He's gloating. It's in character for him. Mm-hmm. Also, the if Exonymous dies, we'll all know 
that it was not only the story, but an incredible show of poor fortune on the part of the dice. Mm -hmm. And I think when it happened, all of us went like, there were a lot of off ramps for this not to happen. And narratively it makes sense and it's heartbreaking and yeah. it affected the story literally for years to come up until this point. Yeah. I mean, and it, it, it's also a really good example of like, you knew who Harfang really was. I made a character choice to be like, I'm going to unexpectedly attack this person for saying, which was actually a really like pivotal character moment. Mm -hmm. Um, cause exonymous, like up until this point, um, what really struggled with sort of like the moment to take action, like when you know if something is right or wrong and like uh, being paralyzed by like making the wrong mistake, like in this decisive moment of like, uh, uh, this is a time to employ like violence. This is like, mm -hmm. um, this crosses the line and I make a decisive choice. Um, it, it, was very decisive for the character and it revealed sort of the truth of Harfang that it was like, this is a, a, a big scary thing. And like, you knew that and I, I didn't, and I we all found out. <laughs> I just realized that if Exonymous hadn't done that, you guys never would have found out Harfang's true nature. I don't think so, yeah. Holy shit, I'd never even realized, I mean, because obviously that session was dominated by Exonymous's death, but yeah, that, that action on, on Exonymous gave everybody that bit of incredibly secret information. I don't know, as a DM, I just really put that together myself. And there's, I mean, there's definitely an element of that that I remember at the time, uh, honestly kind of hurt my feelings where I was like, well, we didn't know that he was this big scary guy. Um, but I think the truth of it was like, yeah, my character didn't know either. This yeah. is not like, um, it felt very specifically like not a handholdy moment of like you weren't just telling us a story like yeah. you knew that this was like a really big scary guy and we had hints that yeah. there was more to this guy than like what we knew um not to the extent that ended up being true but like uh uh like that's sort of what happens when you take that risk and it was like and yeah and then from there it was um you know i played some different characters and i like um, eventually came back as like the twisted, vengeful ghost of Exonymous. And yeah. then like, uh, uh, it, it was a, definitely a pivotal part in his whole story. Yeah. Uh, and what I love now, now Exonymous is back and you're playing our sweet, good lion boy again. Uh, and all of the characters you played in the interim are now in other parts of the campaign world being extremely helpful. So it's almost <laughs> like you backdoored your way into giving your party a bunch of extra cohorts. Yeah, yeah. <laughs> like, like an extremely powerful alchemist and a bunch of other people. Um, uh, God, that's beautiful. So yes. Death is huge, it's a big deal. I think it's important for the narrative of your world. Uh, uh, if you're telling that kind of story, you should keep it, but of course, treat it with the deference it deserves. Uh, oh my God, what this time has flown past. Are we done? We're done. That's it? That's it. Uh, Jack, thank you so much for coming and hanging out and it, talking Adventuring you know, Academy. It, it's been so fun being here. Thank you for, thank you for having me. I love um, it. Uh, we'll catch you guys next time, take care. Bye. Woo! This has been a Dropout Podcast. For video of today's show, plus more exclusive series, go to dropout.tv.